Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is a great joy for Bloomberg right now after the 15 years of public service at the OECD in Paris. Anil Guria has retired. And after a really interesting nominating process, the OECD selects the Pacific Rim, the heritage of the OCD and the previous five secretary uh, generals has been Denmark, Netherlands, France, Sweden, France, and then a change to Canada and Gurias, Mexico. Now, the OECD reaches across the Pacific Rim, as Kishore Mababani of Singapore says, it is the Asian century, and part of that is Australia. Matthias Corman is the OECD's newly appointed Secretary General. Mr. Corman, wonderful to have you with us today, and you dive into a treaty and the complexities of a G7 effort to tax the larger companies. A treaty makes it very, very difficult as well. How will the OCD monitor and study the treaty effort to make taxes uniform at 15%? Well, uh, firstly, good to be here. Um, Secondly, um, the globalization and the digitalization of our economies uh, has uh, created distortions and inequities when it comes to the capacity of governments around the world to raise the necessary revenue to fund the public services and supports that they provide to their populations. And uh, the only way you can solve a challenge like this uh, is through a global solution that is multilaterally agreed. And in in that context, Mm -hmm. the OECD has been working for many years to help improve the global taxation arrangements, uh, to make them fairer, to make them work better. Uh, Now, uh, at the G7 uh, on the weekend, uh, a landmark uh, historic agreement was reached, and and, and that goes Mm -hmm. to two important components. One, uh, to ensure that uh, digital uh, companies, large digital companies, but also other large uh, companies that operate uh, multinationally around the world uh, pay uh, their fair share of tax oh. in markets where they uh, generate uh, significant profits. And secondly, uh, to uh, ensure that uh, multinational companies are not able to uh, structure uh, their tax liabilities, uh, I mean, seriously minimize or, or completely eliminate their tax liabilities anywhere around the world, taking advantage of tax havens uh, and, and so on. And so, um, you know, ultimately, this is one step in the process. There will be uh, other steps to follow. Uh, the OECD facilitates a process that is uh, called the Inclusive Framework, which brings together right. 139 countries and jurisdictions right. from all around the world. And, 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 of course, ultimately, at the G20 uh, a further formal agreement will have to be reached. But the fact that G7 economies, uh, you know, the, some of the biggest economies around the world have agreed uh, to uh, this reform is a very significant stop, a step forward in making sure that there is uh, a globally uh, more fair and sustainable taxation I'm framework sure in place. Within, before you went to Perth, Australia, within your Belgian economics, you studied the Wilsonian effort coming out of Versailles and how all of League of Nations collapsed, basically, with the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Senate. Is the OECD and a G7 or G20 tax regime at the beck and call of the American legislative branches? 
I mean, f firstly, I have to say that the Biden administration uh, has been very helpful uh, in facilitating uh, a uh, consensus at the G7 on the weekend. I mean, the Biden administration and Secretary Yellen uh, took a very uh, constructive uh, approach to multilateralism, helping to unblock what, what had been uh, you know, a difficult uh, dossier up until that time. Uh, but of course, I mean, ultimately, all countries uh, that are part of uh, an agreement, an international agreement, ultimately have to work, uh, you know, these issues through uh, in their domestic uh, context, including, uh, you know, in, in, in the context of, uh, you know, their parliaments. And um, I mean, that is that is obviously something that we uh, hope uh, the U.S. Uh, will do in, in its, you know, in its own time in, in, in the appropriate way. Matthias, G7 agreed to a minimum, at least, of 15 percent. Could you see that tax rate going above that 15 percent? Well, look, uh, you know, uh, it's important to ensure that we strike the right balance. Uh, I mean, the average uh, across the OECD, the average corporate tax rate across the OECD Membership at present uh, sits at about 21 to 22 percent. Uh, there are some uh, countries uh, that are below uh, the 15 percent. Quite a few of them are above the 15 percent. I mean, if, if we were able to achieve a circumstance where uh, all uh, multinational companies operating globally uh, are required to pay at least 15 percent uh, on, their, on their profits, I mean, I think that that is a very significant step forward. Uh, of course, there is still uh, then... Uh, space for the appropriate uh, competition between different uh, jurisdictions based on their you know, fiscal policy settings and their tax mix uh, in their respective jurisdictions. Matthias, there, there's still a lot to do, as you were mentioning, and Tom was referencing how U.S. legislature may end up taking a lead role in what exactly this looks like. What are the main hurdles that you see in the ongoing negotiations as we head into G20? Well, look, I mean, you know, clearly, I mean, it's very important to have uh, all of the G7 uh, countries reach that agreement. But of course, I mean, we, we need to expand, uh, you know, the level of agreement, you know, well and truly beyond the G7. And that's what the inclusive framework process will do uh, with more than 100 uh, countries and jurisdictions involved. And, and indeed, I mean, around the G20 table, you have a, a you know, significant number of uh, uh, other large economies around the world a part of the process. So, I mean, I'm, I'm quietly hopeful, <coughs> quietly optimistic that ultimately when it's all said and done, uh, we, we'll be able to reach uh, a, a, an outcome, uh, you know, in, in, the next, in the next little while. Matthias, on the tax plan, though, can we go back to this idea here of what, of when you're setting the revenue threshold here, there's been a lot of talk about how complex this agreement is or how much it will be. And the idea that companies will sort of be able to find loopholes to get below that $20 billion threshold or whatever the final threshold may be. How do you ensure that companies aren't going to find an end run around that with regards to the revenue uh, component of it? Well, look, I mean, you, you're now going uh, well and truly into the weeds of, uh, you know, technical, uh, you know, implementation arrangements. I mean, I think the principles are very clear. Um, <clears throat> companies, large companies, that are generating uh, significant uh, profits in markets around the world, um, digital companies, but also other large companies, uh, should be required to pay their fair share of tax uh, in uh, the markets in which they generate those profits. I mean, the combined effects of the globalization and the digitalization of our economies has meant that uh, you know, it, it has been possible for quite a number of um, <clears throat> large companies not to pay 
or to pay, to pay very little or not to pay any tax at all in many of the markets they operate. And, and that is just a matter of fairness and public confidence in the way our taxation system works. And, and that is something that the uh, proposal agreed to by G7 right. finance ministers on the weekend would right. address. Now, Matthias Gorman, I am absolutely fascinated as your selection through the nominating process. Many of the other nominees for OECD are people very familiar to Bloomberg surveillance. They've been great help to us in our coverage internationally over the years. You are a different OECD Secretary General, and I want to go to your Australia, your Western Australia, and the idea of the debate over big, evil American tech companies. Maybe it's tangential to OECD but this is going to be in the crosshairs. The fact is Amazon out at the, the Perth airport has been a massive job creator for Western Australia. From where you sit with your finance work in Australia and now you move to Paris, how do you dovetail? How do you fit together the European fear of American big tech with the reality that create jobs like at the Perth Airport Fulfillment Center? Well, firstly, you know, there's 38 member countries of the OECD, and the one thing that uh, joins us all together uh, is that we are all market-based uh, democracies, and we're all committed uh, to generating opportunities uh, for uh, the uh, people in our countries to get ahead based on uh, free market uh, principles and, indeed, uh, you know, based on democratic uh, principles and, and in the context of rules-based uh, global trading systems. So I think you'll find that the things that uh, uh, we have in common are much, much stronger than, than the variances uh, between uh, you know, different parts uh, of um, our, our membership. Now, you know, I mean, I, I bring to this job uh, about seven years' experience as the uh, Australian finance minister, uh, I, but I also bring to this job, uh, you know, my background as uh, somebody who grew up in Europe, went uh, to school and university in Europe. Uh, and so, I mean, I think, I, I guess, uh, you know, the membership felt that I had a, a particular uh, contribution to make, and I look forward to making it. This has been wonderful. Matthias Corman, uh, congratulations uh, uh, as the new Secretary General of the OECD. We begin strong in this hour. Troy Gajewski joins us with Skybridge here on the making of Alpha, Beta, Gamma, and the rest of it within the hedge fund uh, business. Troy, I see all sorts of articles that it's been a really, really whipsaw challenge six weeks or so for the hedge fund business. How is it? Is there Alpha out there? Yeah, but you're right. It has been challenging, particularly in long short equity, really starting since February. And, and what we saw is that, remember, and this gets back to some of the inflation concerns and where the Treasury yield is now, is that, you know, the, the industry was really positioned for, you know, slower growth, potentially, you know, less fiscal stimulus coming. And so they were overweight uh, growth and um, stay at home names to some extent. Um, those have underperformed recently and a lot of the value cyclicals have really screamed. And so it's been a choppy environment in long short equity. You know, last year was a very strong alpha year. This year has been a slight negative alpha year. So it's been harder in the equity part of the capital structure. That being said, if you look at distressed debt managers or those in structured credit, 
they're principally recovery slash value plays. So those have performed very admirably through uh, June 7th so far this year. We could talk all about that, Troy, but really everyone wants to know about Bitcoin and your holding in the crypto asset, considering the fact that you have made such a big push saying that this is going to be the key determining factor in your outperformance this year. Where do you stand on that now, given China's noise around potential crackdowns, regulatory issues, and the fact that we're perhaps moving into a new regime of liquidity? Yeah, so look, we, we step back and still look at the initial thesis, right? You still have tremendous money supply growth. You know, the Fed is still expanding their balance sheet by 120 billion a month. You know, M2 is on pace to grow somewhere between 15 and 17 percent this year. Um, you think of every central bank and every nation state is still in a debasement period for their currencies. Uh, so the macro environment is still very favorable. And as you were talking about before, you know, it doesn't look like there's any urgency for the Fed to taper. They may announce a taper at the end of this year and start to taper uh, sometime early 2022, but that's the most likely path. And then from a, an adoption standpoint, again, we still think we're very early. Um, you look at some of the high net worth or the wealth management platform products. You know, Morgan Stanley's has raised $150 million already. Um, you look at gradual adoption in the hedge fund industry and the asset management industry that continues. And then lastly, we're still relatively early post having, you know, the last having was May 11th of last year. Typically you have an 18 to 24 month bull market. So we still think we're in a bull market. Obviously we had a very horrific correction, but we think the trend line is still up here over the next three to six months. And you think there's a floor built into that, Troy? I mean, because a lot of people look at uh, the current prices, they wonder about some of the institutional embrace of this and whether that's going to be enough of a floor to keep things from going lower. Well, yeah, so obviously after the big dislocation we had, we built up a nice uh, stability zone here in this 33 to 36,000 level. Um, it will be hard to push meaningfully above 40 to 45 um, in the near term. Uh, but again, if you go back and look at previous bull markets, you had uh, substantial corrections along the way. Um, this one was obviously uh, more profound. Um, you do highlight a good point on the environmental concerns is that may slow down some institutional adoption. But again, if you step back and look at your choices for how you play currency debasement, mm. if you care about liquidity and you care about non-correlation, you know, Bitcoin in particular is still a very strong choice for you alongside gold and maybe to a lesser extent copper. But copper, of course, you know, it's a very cyclical recovery play that's already rallied. Um, you know, it's up 100% over a very short period of time. Troy, I want to talk about the big tech, big cap. We've got the Apple conference today, uh, something that we'll be covering, of course, across all of the afternoon. Troy, there's a comfort factor for hedge funds to own those companies. Describe the intellectual process of hedge funds loading the boat on large cap profit making tech. Yeah, loading the boat's a strong term, Tom, because I think there is some uh, distinction in which names they own. But the industry particularly is as long Facebook and Google as we've ever seen them. You know, when you have great value investors like Seth Parman with, you know, two of the top 10 names are Facebook and Google, for instance, that yeah. says a lot. And, you know, so the intellectual process is pretty straightforward. It's like, hey, we're going to be mean reverting here to a slower growth environment again after a big cyclical growth period. You have tremendous profit margins, tremendous cash flow generation. There's really no cost pressures in terms of, you know, expenses, meaning they're not, it's not a labor intensive industry that's going to suffer from higher wages, for instance. Um, and, you know, on a valuation standpoint, they haven't been cheaper relative to the broader markets. 
pre-pandemic days. So, you know, as hedge funds filter through their choices, uh, if you're filtering for risk-adjusted returns, uh, particularly in an environment that will mean revert to slower growth, those look like uh, uh, standout winners to the hedge fund industry. Troy, thank you so much. Troy Gajewski, a briefing there on the state of alternative investments with Skybridge. We're thrilled to start strong this week with Bruce Kasman. He's with J.P. Morgan, their chief economist, head of global economic research. He herds the cats at J.P. Morgan trying to get out a cogent message on economics. Bruce, Lincoln, global inflation with the recovery that we're seeing, dovetail those two in. Is it a good inflation or a bad inflation? I think there's some of both here. Um, on the uh, spike that we're seeing, uh, there's definitely some problems in terms of companies uh, adjusting supply to demand. That's the bottlenecks you see in the semiconductor. That's the used car prices. There's a bunch of those forces that are pushing up inflation, which is not great in terms of what we would like to see. The other side of this, though, is that we are seeing price normalization in what are depressed levels of service prices as we're seeing activity picking up. And I think that's obviously uh, constructive. The bottom line, though, is we're getting a big spike in inflation here, and we're looking for another big number this week with a five-tenths rise in the U.S. core CPI. What happens? What does the Fed do if we see that increase in CPI this week, if we see those inflationary pressures, but we don't see material improvement in the pace of job gains akin to what we saw on Friday? So I think there's three things the Fed has to really work on. One is, I think, continuing to guide us that it's not going to change uh, rates anytime soon in response to an inflation spike that they think is largely temporary. We think they're going to continue to guide that rates are going to at least be on hold through the end of 22. The second thing I think they need to do is start telling us that if they're wrong, and certainly they could be wrong, uh, and inflation is more persistent, that down the road they can do what they need to do to keep inflation under control. And I think in that regard, they will, if not encourage, at least tolerate a rising expectation of rates over 2023, 24. And then finally, what we're not going to get in June, but we need is more clarity about the balance sheet. I think they're going to tell us they're talking about it, but they're also going to tell us it's too soon to really lay out the parameters of what they do in terms of tapering and balance sheet movements more generally. Our, Bruce, our um, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Marcus Ashworth today says it's really difficult to model um, the U.S. economy because the ferocity has been driven by monster fiscal uh, injections and because the Fed has been deliberately vague about what inflation, what flexible targeting really means. How much harder is that, is that making your job? Well, I think forecasting is always difficult, particularly the future. Um, obviously, we're going through a very volatile period, but I think if you take the broad contours that the economy is entering a boom phase led by the consumer, that Europe is joining it, and as you just mentioned, the news on vaccines and viruses starting to look good globally, uh, the simple issue is we're in a very strong phase of growth that's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, the spike in inflation, I think, is largely temporary, but whatever is going to happen here. The Fed, for the time being, is going to be uh, relatively cautious and continue to hold the line. And I think on the inflation targeting side, the Fed wants inflation to get up to the mid-twos for a while. It doesn't want it to get above three, and it wants it to settle at two in the, medi in the medium term. I don't think these parameters are that far, you know, it, far away from uh, you know, where we might think ranges are so that there's a lot of uncertainty. Executing is obviously very difficult. 
I think the Fed's pretty clear on what it wants here. Bruce, Michael Ferroli and your team have led the way on our potential GDP, just the sort of where are we from a demographic and economic standpoint. Have you tweaked your potential GDP to be a more optimistic statistic coming out of this pandemic with all the stimulus? It's an interesting question, and we're struggling with that. And we have not changed our view that U.S. potential growth is around one and a half. And as you can see in the latest employment report, and you can see more generally, there's been damage done to the supply side on labor. But at the same time, we've had a big productivity surge. Some of that is the rotation and growth to higher productivity sectors. It still remains to be seen what happens here in terms of blasting damage from this effect. And, and we're not at this point taking a, a view of really trying to change that view mm. of a one and a half percent potential growth rate. Dr. Kasman, thank you so much. Bruce Kasman, J.P. Morgan, chief economist, head of all of their global economic research. This conversation has been hugely anticipated, and it does so because Nicholas Bloom, as a young student many, many years ago, was at the absolute forefront of labor dynamics, innovation, and technology. He did this with someone that's been of such help to uh, Bloomberg on the Economy and Bloomberg Surveillance, the great John Van Reenen. And we're thrilled that Nicholas Bloom could join us from Stanford uh, this morning. Professor, congratulations on uh, your January 2021 paper, which is the discussion point on work from home. I want to go back to Bloom, Kretschmer, and Van Reenen of 2009. And what has changed is the technology has changed. Is the new technology the reason work from home will work? Uh, you know, it, it's been a, a very odd journey. So, uh, you know, as backdrop, I've been working on working from home since, I think, 2004. I mean, that's almost 20 years now. And it was normally a, a quiet backwater topic until, of course, March 2020, beginning of the pandemic, when it just went wild. Um, it has changed a lot. You know, my experience of working on working from home, the last 10 years have been kind of different because basically we've got the two final critical pieces. We have video calls. So we can do this. We can you know, have, have talks and Zoom and Teams <coughs> over the internet. And we've had Dropbox in the cloud so you can file shares, file, share files. If you go back 20, 30 years, I talk to people that, you know, do working from home in the 80s or the 90s. It was terrible. Uh, yeah. It was you know, telephone calls and dropping off piles of paper at the front door. If the pandemic had happened in, say, 1980, we would have been in real trouble. I mean, we couldn't have right. worked efficiently. Yeah. I'm not sure what the lockdown would have like. Thank, you know, thankfully, we had the ability to flip roughly two-thirds of the economy in March 2020 to working from home. It worked pretty well. In fact, it looks like a lot of that's here to stay. Well, but is there a permanence to it? And let's go back to the hallmark. You did the paper with Van Rienen and Kretschmer in 09. Marissa Meyer changed the world at Yahoo in 2012-13 with a great debate about Yahoo work from home. Drag that forward now to where Nicholas Bloom and Marissa Meyer can say there's a permanence to work from home. Or like Marissa Meyer's, people would say, let's get into the office. Which is it? No, Mar you know, I, I, I spoke to Marissa Ma recently about this, and I think what she did is exactly right, but history's kind of forgotten what she did. So just to be clear, Marissa Meyer discovered that there were people that were working home full-time, and some of them were, like, working so poorly they'd never turned on their computer for more, you know, more than over a week at a time. So she said, look, A, you're going to have to come in 
let's say three days a week. You can't work from home full time. You're going to come in three days a week and be we, we want to monitor you and manage you and make sure what's going on. Uh, you know, you're getting your job done. But huge numbers of firms are rolling out exactly this plan now. So you hear, you know, uh, Citibank and Apple and Google and Microsoft, and HSBC, et cetera. The world is copying exactly that plan now. They're saying, look, post-pandemic, yeah. you're going to come in probably three days a week in the office, let's say Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. You work from home Wednesday, Friday, and we're going to manage you. We're going to, we're going to check up on you and make sure that what you're doing, you're doing your job. But as long as that works, you can continue that indefinitely. All right. So that gets right to the idea here, Nicholas, about productivity and I guess the perceptions of productivity. A lot of companies, they want to look over your shoulder and know that you're doing the work that you're supposed to be doing here. What is your data showing here about the level of productivity during the COVID crisis with everyone at home? Well, quite surprisingly, working from home appears to be slightly more productive than being in the office. So that's based on survey responses and on some data we've got on a few individual firms. My concern and most firms' concern is that won't last forever. So we kind of entered into the pandemic with this stock of what you might call social capital. So we've been in the office for years together. We knew each other. We've been creative together. I don't think that can last forever, what we're doing right now, working at home five days a week. So on productivity, the reason firms are going back is hybrid seems to be the best for productivity. You spend three days in the office, social, you know, all your meetings or your team events or your client events are there two days a week, quietly working at home when you save the commute and you're actually better at quiet time. So it looks like that maximizes productivity and consume, and employees love working from home hybrid. They love to get yeah. two days yeah. a week at home. So this is why this plan has been so universal is it's really the best of both worlds. <clears throat> Firms are more productive. And we as you know, employees are actually happy. Well, what about career advancement? Another criticism of the work from home uh, movement is this idea that you need that face time. If I want to move up in my career, I need to be face to face with Tom Keene every day so he doesn't forget <laughs> that I exist. Yes, exactly right. So, again, the, the thing I've spoken quite you know, vocally on and it's been somewhat controversial is career advancement is fine as long as you are coming in the same number of days as the people you're being competing against. So look, if I'm in, if I'm in a team of 10 people and I'm at home full time and the, the rest of them are coming in, you know, three days, we can imagine I'm going to get le left behind. As long as the whole team comes in on the same three days and stays at home on the other two, things are good because you're compared with people who are doing the same type of work schedule to you. No one's getting ahead with the boss because we're all coming in for the same number of days. So the, the big problem is firms that are going for this choice plan whereby they say, as long as you're doing your job, you can choose the number of days you come in. You can imagine that, you know, down the road is going to be very problematic. Some mm -hmm. people come in one day a week, some will come in five, and those that come in five are going to get promoted and move ahead. Nicholas Bloom, thank you for an early morning in Palo Alto. And Professor Bloom was Stanford at university. I really can't say enough about his January research on this raging debate of work from home. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.